this is Martin Fowler, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I am your co-host today, Troy Lightfoot, and with me I have my other co-host, Jay Hersko. I still think that's how you pronounce it. Am yep, I? Yep, you got it. You got it. Okay, Hersko. So you may be familiar with Jay. He hosts a lot of the podcasts, more than me. So I'm back, um, excited to get started with what could be a possible series. That's if we get some good feedback or not on this episode. If people like what they hear. Um, and what is the series about? The series is about product management. Um, and what we're trying to do is talk about techniques, tips, and tricks from uh, across the industry. And in particular, um, what people would consider cutting edge or, or companies on the forefront of uh, product management as a practice and a competency, right? And if you're at one of those companies, uh, you know, you can comment, you can post in our Discord, you can talk about everything that's wrong with what we're saying or what you love about it or whatever, right? Uh, if you're not at one of those companies and maybe you're at a large organization um, that's maybe gone through an agile transformation or wants to, um, and you want to kind of borrow some of these concepts that are from some of the other companies um, that we're talking about, this could be some an intro for you, really, just meant to be an intro. Um, and also, the la- lastly, but not least, we might provide some resources for deeper dives, maybe links or books or blog posts or something like that. And it will just come naturally through the conversation, most likely. Does that sound good, Jay? Works for me. <clears throat> All right. Uh, so you get me pro- with a mouthful of beer. <laughs> no problem. So um, product management, right? It's If you look at Agile as a, a process, if you look at it as a mindset, a set of values and principles and practices, what we would consider product development um, and product management are extremely critical as pairing, right? The development only comes through someone or some ones as a competency who's thinking about things like strategy, uh, the implementation of that strategy, metrics, um, user experience, um, financials, things like that, road mapping. And so whether that's an individual or a group of individuals who are doing that, whether it's at scale, for example, with product owners and product managers, whether you're using um, an agile at scale framework or not, there's many different roles. We're going to be trying to ag- we're going to try to be agnostic of the frameworks and just talk about some of the techniques and competencies of product management in general. That's that's my goal for this. And so, where I wanted to start, Jay, is to think about if we're going to launch a new product or come up with a new product idea. You know. There's many different ways to come up with features, for example, for software development teams to work on or collaboratively come up with features with them, right? But what about things bigger than a feature? What about either brand new products or services ideas or new projects or new, if you're using, say, for example, a portfolio epic, some large initiative, right? That's what we're talking about. How do you do that? What are the kind of steps that you would go through um, and to, to, to start that process? That's kind of the first topic of this podcast. And I'll kick it off and then I'll kind of bring, uh, throw it over to you, Jay, get your thoughts. And so some of these companies out there, particular companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, you know, the companies that, that a lot of people think are the on the forefront of cutting edge product management techniques, right? I'm, I'm not speaking for everybody, but if you were to say, what are the most cutting edge front forward uh, companies want a product management. You would think about companies like that or Uber or, or Google or companies like that, Apple. And so what kind of techniques do they use? Right. Um, so there's a technique called working backwards. Have you ever heard of it? Not in those words, but I mean, Mike Burroughs talks about it working right okay. to left. Yeah. So working backwards in the sense of we're trying to come up with a new product idea or a new service idea or a large initiative idea, right? So how do we do that? And a lot of people think about the solution first, right? And the, the concept of working backwards is thinking from the customer's perspective and finding the customer problem first before we think about any solutions. So the solutions come later, right? So it's like, how can we work backwards? So we, the first step is to identify the customer. Um, so specific targets of a customer, that's the first step. Like what kind of customer, what kind of target customer are we going to build something for, right? Who are we going to focus on based on our 
strategy, right? Or enterprise strategy or product strategy, et cetera, right? And then what are their problems or pain points? So it's working backwards. Essentially what we're doing is we're identifying the customer, we're thinking about what problems they have, what are their pain points they have, um, what are the possible solutions that could solve this problem for them? How will we measure that? Those type of things. So it's working backwards all the way down to what are the ideas that we have to be able to implement that, right? Um, and there's a process in particular Amazon follows for this. It's actually a seven-step process. And this is a first kind of tip I'll throw out there. Um, and I mentioned two of them. That's identifying the customer first and what in identifying the customer problems first, right? And then the next question they have to answer in product management is, uh, and you could use this, by the way, at your companies, is how do you know the customer has this problem? You have to be able to prove that the customer targets that you're trying to pinpoint for your idea actually has the problems that you say they have. How do you prove that? Right. So you have to go through the exercise of trying to prove this, that they have it. And what are possible problems to solve this pain point? Okay. So how, what are the possible ideas for it? Right. And how do we know that these solutions will address those pain points? Again, how do you know? So it's like, what kind of research have you done? What kind of tests have you run? What kind of inter customer interviews have you done? Those type of things that will let you know that these solutions could possibly solve the pain points. Right? So I think, Troy, that the first step is probably the biggest, biggest stumbling block I see a lot of um, product owners, product managers, even enterprises, right? Even when it comes to like things such, such as as large as strategic priorities, right? Something we yeah. want to concentrate on in the next fiscal year. Um, start with what the problem is from whose point of view. Right. So I think that our um, say we work for say we work for a teleco telco. Right. Um, and our, our problem customer is our business class subscribers. Right. Um, and say we have a, they they have a problem that they can't do um, mixed bill with residential and, and commercial. Right. But then the next step is proving that that's actually a problem. So a, a, a great idea, a great idea is a great idea. But a great idea that you're building for the sake of just building, it's that whole, are we building the right thing? Are we building the right speed? Are we building um, the right quality, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think you could easily, and I know I've seen it, spin up this idea, which sounds like a great idea on paper. And then you build it, you put it out there, and nobody uses it because it wasn't fully, it wasn't fully vetted as a valid concern. Mm. It's a lot like... Um, it's a lot like worrying about your garage door opener not going all the way down when your house is on fire, right? Like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> well, you, have, you have bigger problems there, right? You have bigger problems. And I think that the 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 personification and the putting it through someone else's POV, state the problem and state why it's an issue and back it up. You use the word very quickly, right? The word research, right? Mm -hmm. So don't just tell me, well, I kind of got this funny gut feeling. Some companies, if you're a young startup, you can get away with following your gut. But I think right. for most enterprise um, mature type organizations, that's a loose usage of the word mature, you need to be <laughs> able to back up, I think I need to solve for this problem and here's why. You know, um, In my past life, we had a large number of customers who were exiting the IVR because the prompts weren't giving them enough time to respond. Right. right. So, and I, and I, I worked with someone from the business to submit a charter volumetrically being able to prove that X percent was coming out because they, they were timing out due to lack of input over X amount of time. So I think that first step, Troy, of um, not only finding the POV, finding the problem, but backing it up with data is, is really cannot be understated. There's so much data in these enterprise customers we work for. Just yeah. grab it, you know, find yep. a way to get it. And I think the exercise of forcing yourself to go through these seven questions that I mentioned, um, which is part of the questions are, how do you know the customer has this problem? How do you know the solutions will address these pain points, right? How do you measure success? Forcing yourself to go through this exercise for every idea really drives a level of due diligence as well as that you fully understand why you're building something and you need to be able to explain it to someone else and pitch it to someone else right so it's a it's a skill this is the concept of working backwards in fact at amazon one of the techniques they use is they write a press release as part of their pitch so if you're a product manager right and you're trying to pitch a new idea it's a new large feature idea or a new product a new services or initiative those types of things you will be required 
to go through this process, like I just mentioned. You will also be required to write a press release from the future. And this is part of working backwards. And the press release would have a customer quote. So you would actually have to write a quote or a series of quotes from um, non-existent customers or customers that you already have that are going to say something about your, your future idea right? Like a target customer, for example. So you could say, hey, you know, I'm Joe so-and-so and I use this product and this, and this is how it helped my life. And these are the aspects of the product I use. And this is how it helped me in my business or, or my life or whatever, things like that, right? And then you have to actually write a, a small press release, like write a, a byline, a first paragraph. Um, and so you're basically envisioning what the future state of this product looks like. You're actually envisioning the launch of the product. And so part of the pitches for product managers at Amazon is actually going through this process and showing their press release, showing their seven point working backwards technique. And so by the time someone looks at this, they can say, oh, here's exact, I know the possible solutions that are what, what customers we have that, and what are the problems they have. Right. And how, how do we even know these are the right customers? How do we know the right problems? And so the product management team or individual or whoever has thought through all these things. And now I can make an informed decision about, you know, um, potentially funding something or, or prioritizing it, for example. Have you it's heard the, of that the, the press release? Uh, I, I have heard of that press release. I've yeah. also heard the, the, what is it? The postcards from the future exercise, which is kind of the same thing. Um, uh, postcard from the future is like, um, uh, for a visioning. So this is another, a type of way of doing that, but it's a lot more detailed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, Mike Burroughs does it with, I think it's the five W's, but you're, you're basically describing the setting of who's in the room. What are you celebrating? Why are you celebrating? When are you celebrating? And And it forces you to, again, starting with the end in mind. Work yeah. your way backwards to envision what does that look like in the when this is all said and done, gar- with guaranteed success, it would look like what? Right. So, um, love it. Right. <laughs> this and, is. And like, I, I would think yeah. that the hint is if you can't write a good press release, yeah, you probably don't have a great idea. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if you can't answer those seven questions, then I think the, con- the, the the concept is if you're talking to a business owner or a stakeholder or someone that has some um, either controls the budget, right? Or controls some prioritization in your company. Um, you should be able to answer those seven questions, work backwards, have a nice press release, have this kind of um, future looking vision about what the success looks like and how you're going to measure that, right? And the second thing after that, like once you understand who your target customers are. And once you believe that you understand what the customer problems are, then you might do something like filling out um, a business model canvas and as part of a next step for, you know, creating a product pitch. And that business model canvas all starts with your value prop, right? Without that, you might as well not even be doing it, right? So what is the, you know, what is your value prop, right? So that is the most important part of a business model canvas. And a key thing that I think people can take away, and a lot of companies make this mistake, um, just going after your competitors can actually derail you from your value prop. It's, so, it's, it's you're constantly playing catch up. Yes. So um, we want to start with the customer problem. It's like a customer's first mindset. It, in fact, they have, there's a quote. Um, I believe this quote is from Amazon. I could be wrong, but. It's customer obsessed, competitor aware. And so it's always focused on who are the right target audience to be focusing on for the future, for the current, and what are the problems and pain points and how do we solve them? We're aware of what our competition is doing, but we're focused on actually solving customer problems. If you are, and I, Troy, I'm going to say, if you are yeah. not, if you are not trying to concentrate on the customer and you're just trying to keep up with the Joneses, We end up with the Microsoft Zoom. We Mm. end up with Google Plus. We end up with products where we're just trying to mimic what the competition's doing without without really providing any true value add or differentiator that really make that really drive customers to enjoy, you know, what you're doing. 
I mean, back yeah. then you couldn't just say, oh, well, we're not Facebook and succeed. Nowadays, I'm pretty sure if they relaunched Google Plus and said we're not Facebook, they probably would have give Facebook a go. But back then it was, oh, well, we're just not Facebook, but we offered the same stuff. And it died, what was it, nine months, a year? Not even? It died in the vine? Right, right, right. Yeah. So um, that's a good example. You know, we all have companies we can think of very large, extremely successful companies that have product failures, right? And that could be for many reasons. One of them definitely is trying to keep up with competition. As you mentioned, Zoom is another one. You know, one of the companies that we think of as a innovative, forward-looking company that kind of sets the tone and sets the market for new products is Apple, especially um, in the mid 2000s in particular, right? Early 2000s, mid and late 2000s. That was probably when they were at the forefront of that driving that innovation. Now, they're still doing it now. Obviously, they innovate in certain ways, but you could think about all the things that came out in the 2000s, the first iPod, right? The first iPhone, um, their, the, the Mac. The pod, the phone, and the pad, right? That yeah. was their triumvirate right there. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And that was all within like a 10-year span or so, something like that, within a decade. That was when they were really just... Like now they're still doing, I mean, they're still innovating, of course, um, but, but not that, at the, not at the speed and the d- disruptiveness right. that they did have. And so they have that HomePod, right? And the HomePod is a, a competitor to, I guess, Alexa and the Google Home or something like that, right? And Apple has a, it's an interesting because Apple has a kind of is known for not necessarily being the first to market with some type of products but actually setting the market for those products. So you can think about mm. they weren't the f- they weren't the first company to come out with an MP3 player, right? No. But they were the first company to define the MP3 player market. Did you read that by the yeah. way, that book, the story on the the history of the iPod, the next the next big thing? No, I did read Steve Jobs' it's, biography, but don't read that. It's just hey, it's hagiography. It's trash. The next big thing is all <laughs> about the actual iPod and where the the other players in the space and how Steve Jobs was kind of just pulling an idea from here, idea from there. If anybody is really, if anybody was dedicated to their iPod, has one of those old big 160 gig bricks lying around, pick up that book, The Next Big Thing. It's a really fascinating story and germane to this conversation because it talks about product development, how he, Jobs had a vision, right? And what's his name? Uh, Fabian Schwartz says, you're the best product owner to ever model yourself after is Steve Jobs. Right. He is the alpha product owner. Pretty much. I mean, he always, Steve Jobs has a ton of quotes. I didn't, I didn't intend this for this to be a Steve Jobs podcast, but I don't mind if it is, to be honest with you. Steve Jobs has a, a, a beautiful, brilliant quote that any agilist should really take to heart, right? He's, he has a quote that says, focus is about saying no. Which I is can't. the biggest problem that we, we experience. Yes. So that is, if you think about, you know, agile principle number 10, um, simplicity, the art of maximizing the amount of work not done is essential, right? That was written in 2001 or whenever that was written. 2001, I know it was. Um, The focus is about saying no was probably mid 2000s, if I don't, but I don't think Steve Jobs was sitting there reading through the agile manifesto, you know. (laughs) So my point is, his mindset about product development is exactly the mindset that the Agile Manifesto authors were having when they were coming up with these principles, right? It's about focusing is about thinking about what not to build, right? And so the next evolution, I guess, of this conversation is how do we find out not only what solutions could cause uh, or or could, could solve a pain point for a customer, but how do we find out which solutions we're wrong about that we think will, will solve a pain point for a problem for a customer. Because everyone assumes that they're right. For example, every single person you probably will ever talk to, if you ask them their opinion on something, they're going to think they're right about their own opinion. That's just a reality. Right? That's how humans work. So therefore, we have so much bias when we come up with our own ideas, even for product development. And so the concept of um, having forcing yourself to go through a lean UX process where you have to come up with a hypothesis and test that hypothesis, right? And when you, te- here's a key point. 
when you test a hypothesis, you should be trying to disprove your own hypothesis. That's how yes. real scientists do it. Yes, that and that, Troy, is the point that I guarantee you 99% of the people listening to this have never, ever heard that said to them verbalized, where when you come up with a hypothesis, your goal isn't to prove yourself right. Your goal is to try and prove yourself wrong. And if you can't prove yourself wrong, and this is how the science, like you said, the scientific method works. If I have an experiment that I can't prove my hypothesis wrong, and you repeat the experiment and you can't prove wrong, and it goes around the room, that's where that's where scientific facts, and I'm using air quotes to say facts, come from. It comes from a hypothesis that cannot be proven falsified, falsifiable. I forget what that is. <laughs> well, yeah. So great point. So I think um, when you're coming up with a new product idea, where let's say you're using something like Safe and you're coming up with a Safe portfolio epic, for example, you know, Safe has done a good job um, at in their portfolio Safe at taking concepts from lean from the lean startup and lean UX and rolling it into portfolio management, which is really cool actually because they encourage people to go through this hypothesis testing. Now, how much people actually do this is, you know, that's very much up for debate. And, you know, but at, the, at its core, if you ever do go, and this is not to be, then to be a safe podcast, by the way, but they're not inventing this is what I'm saying. No, the theory holds. It's yes. to, your, to your point though, it's not yes. the theory. It's the actual application where things go. Correct. Very screwy, very quickly. Yeah. So if you're, so basically what we're saying, what we're suggesting is when you're coming up with a new product idea, um, a new service idea, or a large initiative to ex for an existing product or service, right? Not only should you do this work backward process, this visioning, this you know, doing your due diligence about how do we know this is the right customers and we're solving their problems and everything we mentioned so far, filling out a business model canvas, right? F figuring out what your value prop is, thinking about um, you know how will how will this product or service you know help make gains for the customer or solve their pain points, right? Or for the company. And how will these things relieve, um, how will these ideas potentially relieve, relieve pain or problems for the customers? And thinking through all that, and then you could say, this is our real value problem. After you go through all that, then you actually have to do the work of testing these ideas out. Right? Mm -hmm. And one of the ways is to simply come up with a hypothesis of, of your value prop. Like, for example... If you have a value prop and you think, you know what, this is the best idea I've ever come up with, right? Okay. <laughs> then write a hypothesis and go try to disprove your own idea, right? And it, it's, okay to, it's okay to have metrics that would be in there that would prove your idea, but that's easy to do, right? Like I could easily create metrics that would make any, when I release it, most likely it's going to look like my idea was good, right? If I, if I put a set of targets in there, for example. So, you know, um, key results that I was trying to look in to get, for example. So you should really set your test up because essentially what we're, what we're suggesting is product management is a series of tests, right? And that is a testing of what is the minimal thing we can do to go test out whether this is even a good idea or not, whether this would solve the problem. And sometimes and often it doesn't have to be building any software whatsoever. It could simply be going, finding a small segment of customers, going and talking to them, showing them your ideas, and, you know, interviewing about their pain points, walking through some prototypes some sketches with them, right? Doing, you know, this is all part of UX research, right? But that could be your MVP. It doesn't necessarily have to be spending months and months and months and multiple development teams time and, and, and energy, right? On, and salaries, on building a quote unquote MVP, when really we could probably prove some of these things out um, early on without having to build um, much software at all. And that comes down to one of the competencies of product management is the ability to either do some UX work or work closely with UX people, right? And in a small company, you might have to wear some of the UX hats, right? You might have to do a lot of these customer interviews and set up um, uh, customer metrics and tests with them and, and get them using prototypes and observing them and things like that. Also, we talk about Kano analysis on, on this podcast. We've talked about that, you know, different types of survey techniques. And anyway, you might, you might have to do all that yourself, right? If you're at a small company, if you're at a large company, though, you likely have people who do this type of work. So one of the competencies of product management is to be able to 
you know, come up with the ideas, work on the business model canvas, work on the value prop, and then work with your UX people to be able to run these series of tests, you know, prior necessarily prior to having software teams build anything. That's one approach to it. The other approach is to come up with the simplest thing that we could build and then go test, right? And it's going to be very context dependent. What do you think about this concept, Jay, about, you know, bringing in UX prior to um, uh, building anything? So there's a lot to unpack there. So I think yeah. I, I think the concept of, and you touched on it without touching on it, right? The whole, the whole MVP, right? Um, understanding that is way easier said than done because everyone always thinks MVP is their first swag at the biggest, you know, biggest thing possible. And it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of experience, a lot of repetition, a lot of, of practice to start to understand what is the smallest thing I could build. Right. right. Um, and conversely, I would even add the, the bug in people's ear that are listening that maybe the solution isn't to build anything. Maybe the solution to your problem isn't more technology, but less. Maybe mm-hmm. it's a process change. Right. Mm. I mean, um, I, I gotta put, I'll put a link in the show notes, but Elon Musk had this great interview where he gave some guy a tour of the of the space shuttle factory, right? And I think Elon's a trip. I know some people don't like him. I think he's kind of funny because he mm-hmm. just strikes me as one of those really brilliant people who sounds funny when he talks because he's trying to take it down three levels so normal mortals can understand him. <laughs> but he made a point. He was talking about right. the five things that he thinks, the five steps that he thinks are vital to success when it comes to delivering a product. And we're talking about a space shuttle, right? This is hardware. Right. This is something that can literally explode. And one of the things he said is um, simplify or optimize your idea. And then his next statement was don't optimize something that should not exist. Mm. And that has been rattling around in my head ever since he said that. Because how often, Troy, do we come up with something that we think is an MVP that, or we've seen people come up with something that they think is an MVP that if we took another 10, 20, 30 hour to talk about? we'd realize it's still too big. It's not an MVP, right? Mm. How often do we, do we, um, um, we have a, you know, a solution before we've even clearly stated the problem and we, we build that thing. And that thing again, to my, my remark about not even needing code, maybe it didn't even need to be exist at all. So I think right. that, I think it's a healthy, I, I would, I think you would probably agree that a healthy attribute of a good product owner, product manager is, um, skepticism in your own great ideas. Yeah, no, right? I, like, totally I know agree. this is a great idea. No, I think it sucks and try to prove yourself wrong or, you know, or just get married and have a partner who wants to do to you. Um, oversharing <laughs> there. Sorry. But that that's, I think very key, right? Yeah. Very key. And Jay, I want to add on to what you're saying. An MVP is not the minimum amount of thing we have to build to satisfy a stakeholder. Uh, an MVP is the minimum amount of work we have to do to prove or to prove that our idea is viable. That's yes. what it is. Uh, so that's why I was picture, mentioning. picture, Troy, yes. MVP, think of a metal detector. Think about the guy on the beach with a metal detector. The yeah. MVP is the beeping. Yeah. And when you hear beep, 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 that, that increasing speed, yeah. you're onto your MVP. Right, because yep. you're going the wrong way. That's an MVP in a nutshell. It's am I am I directionally going in the path I should be going on? And if you're walking to the left and the beeps are getting slower and fewer, further apart, you're on the wrong path. Don't go that way. Right. Right. Think, uh, product, did I just make an analogy? A product manager is basically a guy with a metal detector on a beach looking for a lost <laughs> engagement ring. That's our next sticker. We got to build that one. But I mean, you get where yeah. I'm going, right? The analogy is a little loose, but you get where I'm going, right? You're looking yeah. for signals to know that you're on the right path before you build the whole custom ERP system that no one can figure out how to use. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I love it. Totally agree. And you mentioned something about Elon Musk and tell me if, if I got this right. He was basically saying, don't build things that you shouldn't build. Or what, what was he saying again? What was uh, Don't optimize what should not exist. Oh, okay. So, so I'll yeah. give you this, the, the step before that. He talks about how when it comes to like, Tesla and Tesla and them building like even SpaceX, he says, you know, the first step in his process is make your requirements less dumb. And he says, <laughs> then he makes a remark, the smarter the person that gives you requirements, the dumber the requirements probably need to be, right? <laughs> but then he talks about how you need to try to consistently delete process. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you're not consistently trying to add back in 10% of what you thought you had to do, 
you're not deleting enough. He said, mm-hmm. it should always be a fight, right? To say, right. I need to add back it like as a good product manager, right? Troy and I, I see you smiling because I know you've had this conversation where somebody's like, but Troy, I need this. And you're going, is it really part of the MVP? And when they, when you fight with them and you push back a little bit, they finally go, no, I guess you're right. Well, that was so, one of his other steps. Yeah. So the next step from an MVP, like what I'm describing, whether that's through UX research and um, kind of prototyping, that's one way of doing an MVP, for example. Another one is, you know, creating a simple, you could run an MVP with an ad campaign. Like you can, there's a, I think the, the term is fake door. Like you can create up a, a web page for, for a, a product that does not yet exist, run an ad. I'm just giving you some examples. Run an ad, Facebook ads for it and see how many clicks you get on that ad and how many clicks you get as signups for email on a, on a product that doesn't yet exist, right? If you can't get any interest that way, then is it even worth built? Is it even worth developing, right? So my point is there's more than one way to create an MVP. Right. It doesn't always have to be a, a set of features. But when you do create a set of features and you are going to put it in customers' hands, you should always think about creating a, and I'm talking about beyond just a simple hypothesis test of, is this idea viable or not? Like I just described, but uh, there's a term called minimum lovable product, right? And that term is actually becoming more widely used in the industry and product management. And that's really, what is the minimum set of things we can build that our customers will actually love? And how do we know that they love it? And can we prove that? Because if customers love our products, then that is a leading indicator for success, basically. Yeah, I'm doing something right. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't want people to begrudgingly use our software because somebody is forcing them to do, like sometimes it happens in the corporate world, for example. Sometimes. um, But if if you're in the competitive market, for example, if you're in the we've been talking about Apple and Google and all these companies. If you're in that type of world where you have such extreme competition on the software and hardware side, right? That, you know, Samsung and Apple and Google and the, all these companies are competing for the same households in a lot of our circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. You can't afford to have products that people don't love. You can't afford to have features that people don't love. Right? So how do you know that someone loves your idea? Right? Like not just says, in an MPS survey from an email three weeks later. Survey monkey results said, yeah. Right. But how do you actually know? And so that's another kind of key skill and competency that um, of product management that you can start to develop. Right. And, and, and and make a note of this timestamp, Troy, because I want to come back to this. It's not for this episode where, you know, you, you, you just said, and and this is a question I think we should unpack in this series. You just talked about how do you know that your customers love their product? My question to you, don't answer it now, but start thinking about it. If I'm a market leader, I'm Apple, I'm Tesla, I'm Amazon, right? I'm Amazon, I'm Facebook. How do I know that people really love my product? Or are they just, it's so ingrained in their lives that they just use it, love it or hate it, they're going to use it anyway because it's such a big vital part. How does a product manager challenge that preconceived notion? And what are some steps you could take to make sure that, yes, these people don't love it or it's not one of those, oh, great, bend over, here it comes, they're doing this, but I got to deal with it. (laughs) Right. The inevitable Facebook <laughs> right. redesign. Right. Put a pin in yeah. that. But that's something I really would like to pick your brain coming back to is how mm-hmm. do I avoid that bias that's in inadvertently going to creep into what I'm doing based upon where I sit corporate wise? And how, what are some tips and tricks to get around that? But continue. Yeah. I'm sorry. All right. So let's do this. I'll take that as home. I actually have some ideas, but I'm going to save it for the next episode. OK. OK. So that's a teaser. I'll save my ideas for that. Um, last thing I want to talk about is. um is this con- that you you just talk when you're talking about Elon Musk? It got got me thinking about this. So Jeffrey Moore's uh, Joffrey, I don't know exactly his name. Je- I think it's Jeffrey Moore. Um, Crossing the Chasm, that book, mm-hmm. right? And it talks about customer adoption and and product market fit, and it talks about um, uh, life cycle growth of a product, right? And so there are different techniques that companies go through in different stages of growth. And one technique for a a company that's in a mature product stage, 
right? So you already have a lot of success. You, it's already a cash cow, right? The problem with that is nothing stays a cash cow forever, right? Like if you keep a product as it is and don't continue innovating on your successful product, eventually someone is going to eat into your market share. Right? And take yeah, care. and the, the things that differentiated you, like that yes. users were so excited about, yeah. just become humdrum, right? And yes. iPhone, perfect example. Hey, a big touchscreen. Hey, no buttons. Hey, you know, no 3.5 millimeter jack, right? All those things which were so bleeding edge, now it's just kind of a given that, well, why do I want buttons on my screen? And it shouldn't right. be a whole touchscreen. You know, like it, uh, Peter Merrill goes into this really, uh, really well in his Xscale class where, you know, that's your boy, Steve Jobs, right? That's what made Steve Jobs so impressive as a product owner. He cannibalized his own customer base knowing he was giving them something better, right? Yep. If he had listened to his own internal detractors when he wanted to roll out the iPhone, when the iPod was already there, he never would have done it. Yeah. But he said, no, I'm going to cannibalize this product because I know they're going to go into this thing. And that yeah. S-curve gets stacked as opposed yeah. to as opposed to the Kondratiev wave just stacking, you know, subsuming each other. He actually was able to go vertical. And then he died and they gave it to Tim Cook. And now now look, now they're trying to put child porn spyware on your phone, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but, <laughs> okay. but I guess my point being is yes. maybe, maybe it's another topic. Maybe you are doing something right if you are planning to you know, there's that whole idea of planned obsolescence with your appliances that kind of sucks, but maybe you should be looking to disrupt your own customers with the next thing. So one of the, I was going to talk about that, like some of the ways that um, are parts of a product growth life cycle, right? One of the ways that people, you know, st- introduce a new product is by, there's a term called um, uh, stealth positioning. And basically it's like associated what you're pitching as a, not good or tainted or product that needs improvement on, right? And Steve Jobs was a master at that. When he would introduce a new product, like the uh, first iPod, he would they would walk you through what the current MP3 players look like and how crappy they were, right? Like, oh, this thing, it, it skips. It only has like, uh, it can only hold like 20 songs. Like, you know, basically associating your current product with tainted products and pushing yourself. Like basically you, you're coming in stealthily really, but you're kind of trying to co- overcome customer resistance. Cause the truth is owners of those MP3 products prior to the iPod, maybe some of them were happy with their product. Who, who knows? Right? Like there was nothing else. So Maybe you liked just having 20 songs and having five hours battery life or whatever. Some people are okay polishing the turd, right? I mean, I had a BlackBerry Storm, which I swore was the greatest thing in the world in hindsight. I'm I'm embarrassed. I just said that on a podcast. This is going to be on the internet forever. (laughs) But that's like a stealth positioning. And then once companies break in, right? Like once the iPod comes and breaks in and says, oh, no, no, no. Look at all these other competitors. They're terrible. Our thing is like, it's the new hot thing. And here's how we're going to solve all your problems. And they were very good at explaining those things, right? And even in their ads and all those things. And then once you used it, they had to deliver on that experience. And they did, obviously. That's Otherwise, they wouldn't have been successful. So then there's like a concept of break breakaway positioning. So now you have many other competitors and you know, what features can you combine from maybe other products and services in your company to make, to really break away from, um, from your competition, right? How do you set yourself apart now from the, uh, from the pack who's trying to get there? But the problem, and this is what I was talking about. I wanted the last thing I wanted to talk about. It's a really interesting thing that I think we, I don't hear many people talking about now. Maybe it's the companies I'm working in. It could be, but this concept of reverse positioning, and that's basically like you have a mature product, right? So let's say you're an insurance company. You've been around a long time. You make a lot of money, right? Let's say you're one of the biggest insurance companies in the world. It's not Amazon and Google. It's not like the most exciting stuff as far as what gets consumers excited, right? But you're making a lot of money. You have a cash cow and you don't want to lose your position in the market, right? So what are your options? Well, one option is to chase your competition. So some other insurance companies doing this, we should do the same thing. And that's what we talked about that earlier is that's not really the approach that some of these other companies take for product management. So what can you do? So reverse positioning is actually stripping away features and attributes that people expect in a mature product and adding new ones and making it seem like it's a new product. 
It's an interesting twist. You Explain know, that. So, I mean, we're, let yes. me play that back. So yes. by reverse positioning, you mean stripping away features that customers expect as kind of like a baseline out of the yes. box and yeah. replacing that baseline functionality with something quasi new and improved. Give me an example. Because okay. I think I I think I get it in theory. I need a, I need an application. I'm going to give you two examples. Okay. okay. We've been talking about Apple. I'll give you one. When they decided to release a MacBook without any USB or HDMI ports, right? Regular USB ports, right? Most people, customers for a mature product like a MacBook, which is an extremely mature product, right? Most people would consider that pretty radical. Most companies wouldn't just say, we're not going to have any more ports except like a USB-C port. And that's the only thing, right? That is actually a form of reverse positioning. What they're doing is stripping away core functionality that all the users expect. And they're saying, no, like we're getting rid of all this because the future is this and this is what you're going to use, right? And then people go, you have two options, right? You could say, you know what? This is the dumbest idea I've ever heard, and I'm not going to buy a new MacBook, right? But most people, it seems like it resonates with people who are Apple users, that they like this concept of reverse positioning. Strip away things that I'm used to and give me new stuff, which is future looking, which now seems like MacBook is a brand of the future instead of a current mature product. All right. All right. All right. So I I get that example, but that also ties the the conversation I want to have with you is how do I know that I'm not to quote my to quote my good friend Ben Al Young, getting high in the smell of my own farts, right? Sure. Because I have a captive audience, and truth be told, Troy, a lot of you you will admit this, a lot of Apple fans are dedicated Apple fans. There are people who use MacBooks for their performance. There are people who use MacBooks for their um, feature set, and then there are people who just love everything Apple does and will buy them. So like, that ties to my question of how do I know that I'm not deluding myself by by having a captive audience. But anyway, I get I get where you're going though. I get I understand well, the reverse positioning. It's you like would have to the, set up. Um, you would. I'm sure they measure their sales. They measure their customer sat. They have probably usage metrics. I'm sure they have a bunch of metrics that they test this stuff with. I, I don't know. I don't work at Apple, but we got to find I'm, somebody at Apple. Who do we know? Well, let's, let's troll LinkedIn. Let's find. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'll give give you one more example. If there's any gamers out there, yeah. And because video game companies, um are heavily, heavily metric-driven, right? Especially modern video games, which are service-based. So if you have a video game that's supposed to be years long and it's a service game, it's not like the old games where you buy a cartridge and that cartridge you pay $60 for or whatever, and that's the game, right? Now games are basically live services that change every quarter, you know, every six months. Every month. Yeah, most, right? most games are doing updates every month, yeah. So... How, do, as far as a business model for for a live service video game, let's say that you have established a maturity as a brand and a product and as a game in the market, right? And then you have all these other new games coming out that are trying to differentiate themselves from you and take your market share, right? So what do you do in that example? So I can give you one example. There's a, a game called Destiny. And that game is made by a company named Bungie, who, uh, as if, if anybody's ever played Halo, the old Halo yeah. games, Bungie was the company who made Halo. Anyway, so Destiny, that game has been around um, since for about seven years now. Okay. And last year, Bungie did something very interesting. They released a game in 2017, I believe it was, Destiny 2. And every year, they would release new DLC and new expansions for the game. And then they would, you would, they would charge you for those expansions, right? So that's one way of making money. The other way they make money is these season pass things, right? And basically, they have these like two or three month season and you have to pay for it. There's like all different ways of service yeah. they make money. The point is, last year they did something really interesting and it was a form of res- reverse positioning. 80, I would say, and now I'm, I'm, I am making this number up, but I know a little bit about this. I would say 70, I would say it's about 70% of their game, which people paid for, for the previous three years, they took out of the game. They said, 70% of this game is going away and we're introducing 20% more. So basically what they did was (laughs) that you paid for a video game over the last three years, right? As a service. And they took away about 70% of it. 
And they said, nope, we're stripping all that functionality away and we're introducing new functionality to you. And here's a roadmap for the next three years. And here's where we're going. That drove a bunch of new users and previous users back to the game by taking away stuff that people paid for. It's a really interesting psychological, I don't know, experiment if you want to think about it. Interest, uh, I'll play devil's advocate. It's kind of douchey yeah. though, right? Like it's kind of it fucked is. up, right? I mean, great. From a business I mean, perspective, and let's, though. And let's be honest. Think about it from right? a business perspective. Most people, right? The yes. way video games, the speed at which video games develop, right? Yes. The, the cadence at which new properties come out. Yes. Most people, I mean, now, now, I'm, now I'm thinking about my remark of being douchey. Most people aren't playing a game that's three years old. Most people. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, granted, there are still people that play Counter-Strike. There are still people that host Halo 2 servers, which I, while if there's anybody from the gaming industry who's listening, I think the biggest mistake that Xbox, PlayStation, they all make is the inability for if Troy has a game that Troy loves and, you know, it, you can't really find a server for it anymore because it's not supported by EA, Troy should be able to pay 10 bucks a month to host his own uh, Kane and Lynch 2 Dog Days server. Right. So mm -hmm. people who still want to play can find Troy, but sorry, I digress. But yeah, I guess that does make sense. Um, well, before Jay, real quick, let me, when it comes to product lifecycle, right? They have a very mature product, a lot of sales. They've made a lot of money off of this product, right? The product is going stale because the life cycle of a video game for it to be beyond three years is very uh, not very realistic in for a lot of games. It's true. Right? Yeah, that's not that's an out that's more of an outlier than it is the norm. So how do you from a business perspective, how do you go from an extremely mature product back to a growth product for the same product, right? Same game. So what I'm suggesting is this concept of removing things and refocusing on new functionality is a real legit business strategy for a mature product. That's what I'm saying. Like that's an extreme example of destiny, but that's what Elon Musk is talking about is some, 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 some similar actually. Well, there's, yeah. but there's also, there's also some echoes there. There's some, some analogies to what we see in biological systems. So uh, ant colonies, um, uh, uh, gazelles, herds of gazelle. Yeah. There's, there's something in biology called apoptosis, which is yep. voluntary cell death, which yep. is where cells reach, uh, cells are self-sacrificed in order for the whole organism to survive. And this mm. is basically kind of the same thing where you're sacrificing a chunk in order to save the remainder. Um, interesting aside, cancer in humans or cancer biologically is the lack of apoptosis in a biological system. Mm. So the cells that should be voluntarily killing themselves off do not and that's mm. why you have cancer. And on the right. other side of that coin, the exact opposite of cancer is Alzheimer's, where you have an artificially accelerated cell apoptosis, which leads to de degeneration in the cellular in the cerebral structure, right? Which leads to Alzheimer's. So mm. maybe there's an analogy there, Troy. We can unpack in episode like twelve. Of <laughs> how do you how do you know your how do you know by doing this by doing reverse positioning, you're not causing you're not caught you're not doing it too soon right which would be alzheimer's or you're not doing too much of it to the point you're not doing it at all and you end up with cancer mm. maybe that's a different conversation to have how to know where to find how to help people find the sweet spot and i would say it's probably going back to at the beginning of this podcast a lot about research a lot about understanding your customers customer needs problems what excites them, interviews, setting up focus groups, setting up tests, prototypes. I can't imagine Bungie did all of this stuff without having a small group of people that they talked to, that they had that side NDAs, right? Without like showing them the new features that are coming, the next couple of seasons, getting people excited, right? Uh, like, there still it, really yeah. still are people playing that game that far in? Like that's kind of wild. I mean, yeah, for those Destiny, for those is, on a, Destiny that, is on like a growth pattern right now. For and those that's my listeners point. that don't play video games, right? Like that is very kind of surreal. Because like your yeah. your best, I mean, the best example that most people can and equate to is Call of Duty because there's a yeah. new one every year, every other year, and we're talking very, about the same game. 
Very, yeah, very rarely do people stick around with one piece of one game for that's not uh, that's not PC based like Warcraft, Starcraft, EverQuest. Those are Eve Online. Those are outliers. But yeah. a console based game that's still going three years in with a roadmap of sounds like two to three years is kind of kind of impressive to watch that and see how it develops. What I, what I'm saying is it's not about this is podcast not meant to be about destiny but it's really meant to be about product management strategies, right? Right. Understanding you, the, where your product is. One we talked at the beginning about pitching new products and coming up with new ideas and validating those type of things. Now we're talking about product life cycle, knowing where you are in the life cycle and what your options are to be able to go back to a growth. So you have two choices. If you stay in the mature stage, eventually you're going to die out, right? Yeah, or because, you can get disrupted. Yeah. yeah. Or you can you can decide, it's a very valid thing to decide to decommission your product or idea and to make up a new one, right? Now that's tough if it's a cash cow, but you could decide that, right? And then the thing that we're just talking about now with the Destiny example is reverse positioning and basically repositioning your mature product, which people already know and already understand the brand behind this product and are familiar with it, as a form of a new product, even though it is basically the same product, right? So it is like a branding and repositioning. Uh, that's why it's called reverse positioning, basically. So yeah, anyway, so that I, I think we should leave it there, Jay. There's a lot more coming up. Um, if people like this podcast, which we'll probably put it out fairly soon, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, if people like this podcast, you know, maybe we make it a series. I have a lot more topics kind of in the hopper for this. So this is a good starting point. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jay. It was a pleasure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I guess, Troy, I'll lead us out. Uh, if you like what you heard, please give us a review, a rating uh, in Apple uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your podcasting platform of choice. Please do. Uh, it does help other listeners find us. Uh, shout out to Machine Man Records and their artist Krebs who provided free of charge our outro music. Please check them out on Bandcamp. That's Machine Man Records or Krebs, K-R-E-B-S. Uh, if you liked what you heard, if you did like what you heard, get in the conversation and talk about it. We have a very vibrant Discord server, which will show up in the show notes. Uh, feel free to hop in. I think we just crossed the 360 user mark. We average about 40 to 60 users uh, active during the day. So it's fairly vibrant. We have some, a lot of good conversations there. It's not just people talking to themselves. Uh, and last but not least, we are dedicated to always being free. However, we do have a Patreon. So if you like what you heard and you want to throw us a couple bucks here and there to offset some hosting fees, production costs, um, Feel free to do so. You might get a surprise sticker package in the mail. We did run off some uh, Agile junk drawer runs as of late and uh, introducing chaos to make your transformation work. Uh, so once again, uh, on behalf of myself, I want to thank Troy for inviting me tonight. I think this was a very good conversation. It was nice to not be in the hosting seat. On behalf of Troy and myself, and we want to thank all of you listeners for tuning in again. And until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out. See you later.